Ready? Do I look better with a fringe or... No. I mean, you look fine right now. We're recording, by the way. And, oh, okay. I was just curious. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious of what to do with my hair. So, yeah. um... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have a fringe to play with and I don't want it to let it go to waste. But anyways, so welcome creeps. We're just talking about my hair. Yeah, welcome back creeps. Um, <laughs> you caught us mid-conversation. I... They're eavesdropping on us. <laughs> I feel like a fringe is fine. Yeah. In the moment. Yeah. But then as soon as it starts to get a little bit longer, it's mm. a pain in the ass. Well, you know, I think in about... I think I'll enjoy it like now how it is because I don't want to cut it back short. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just enjoy fringe. Yeah, because right now it's naturally that length. You yeah. like the rest of your hair. Yeah, because I always think like uh, Axel Rose got a fringe or always had a fringe in his younger days, and I just remember him growing it out and thinking like it looked ridiculous. Well, I think the cool like I'll grow it out. Yeah, would you? You're growing it out all together though. When it gets too long, I'll just do that side part and then just have everything to the side and then have everything grow like to nice curly bob yeah and then you can work with it yeah um right well anyway <laughs> to all of our new listeners because i know that we got a lot this week thanks to uh him harold yeah him harold <laughs> no, uh, jim harold's campfire yeah um and we're super appreciative of it so if you are new here we normally have a little bit of a ramble at the start to get into it, but we don't take too long. No. But also make sure to stick around. We generally do, like this week, I'll tell a story. Dulce, I'll tell a story. And then after the two stories, there's a listener email. Yeah, it's kind of like intercourse when you're married. Our foreplay is very cut brief. down. Very brief. <laughs> and to then, the point. <laughs> yeah. And then when it ends, we just kind of go our separate ways <laughs> yeah basically yeah in a nutshell um so yeah let's get it let's get stuck in weird yeah all right right so this week i'm talking about a very well-known serial killer that i knew very little about which is why i'm covering it because i was just genuinely curious so richard benjamin speck never he heard of him <laughs> no, I haven't. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were taking the piss. No, I'm not oh, taking okay, the piss. Okay. Because he, he's like, he's up there. No, I don't know who Richard Speck is. Right on. Well, you're about to know. Okay. You're about to find out all about him. Fantastic. This is much better. I thought you knew this story. Great. No. So Richard Benjamin Speck was born on the 6th of December, 1941 in Kirkwood, Illinois. He was the seventh child of... Benjamin Franklin Speck and Mary Margaret Carbo. That was her maiden name. She she was Italian. Probably. I, I don't fucking know. Okay. Anyway, um, his dad was extremely hardworking, picking up extra shifts and all and, mm. you know, doing whatever he could. Mm -hmm. But they still lived in like extreme poverty is what they said anyway. His mom was... An arsehole. Ugh. Basically. No, I, it was really hard. Like, different reports said different things. But one thing was for sure. She was very strict, super religious, and described as a teetotaler. What? Which, yeah, I had to Google that as well. Basically, like, 
just not tolerant of any sort of tobacco or alcohol, like nothing. She just lives straight edge. Yeah. Even to the point where at, a, I think, a church organized fish fry one time, Richard's dad had a beer, one beer, mm-hmm. and she went fucking nuts. Wow. Yeah, severely reprimanding him. I thought was, I thought you were going to say she thought fish fry. Like, fish is fine, but once you fry and batter it, then it's too decadent. Oh, then it's unholy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Richard and his dad would go off fishing together. Yeah. And this was like their thing. It was almost like a fucking retreat for the two of them. They were away from the house. It was just them. Really nice time as well. And so they became extremely close. Yeah. But sadly, Benjamin died suddenly. In 1947, at the age of 53, he had a heart attack and Richard was only six at the time. Yeah. And completely devastated him. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. So that didn't bode well for his view of women, I'm assuming. Well, yeah, his relationship with his mom, it's complicated. And I, I will mention it later because I kept trying to find more and more information and just kept finding the same few, like, random facts about her. But anyway, he had... Like I said, he was the seventh of eight siblings. Oh. But I think there was an almost a 10-year gap between him and his next older sibling. Oh. Whereas he had one younger sister who he was quite close to. Okay. But in saying that, his older sisters spoiled him. And like were like extra moms, basically. Oh, okay. By the sounds of things, yeah. Hmm. But yeah, even like after the death of his dad he still had this like lack of emotional connection with his mom. Yeah. I feel like I'm rambling right now for some reason. So his classmates at the time recall him showing like severe signs of regression. Like he began eating crayons, uh, just constantly whining all the time, acting like a toddler and just generally crying out for attention. Yeah. When you say eating crayons, it made me think of that one episode of Bob's Burgers where they first introduced Gail in the series, and they were like, oh yeah, you know, did you hear Aunt Gail ate a tube of lipstick because she wanted to feel red inside? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that lady's batshit. Um, but one of his classmates in particular, and I watched the documentary, by the way, I will list my sources after this, and they had some pretty interesting interviews, but this guy was a real Forrest Gump sounding lad. And he said that one day they were watching a movie in class Uh and he turns around to see Richard sitting on the teacher's lap. And when he asks the teacher, why is Richard sitting on your lap? She says, oh, Richard Speck was acting like such a big baby. I couldn't think of any better place to put him. Uh So like publicly humiliated him, you know, in front of the whole class. Anyway, by 1950, Richard's mom, who, like I said, was a total, uh, a teetotaler had fallen in love with a traveling insurance salesman who she had met on the train to Chicago. This man's name was Carl August Rudolf Lindbergh, who was a mean-looking bastard and was a heavy drinker with a long criminal background for forgery and drink driving and, I don't know, anything else in between. It just said a 25-year-long. That's a huge fucking 180 from what her preferences were. To where she's with now. Yeah, like barely three years later. You realize so. he drinks, right? And like you that's, just yeah. lost your shit at the fucking fish fry for that. So the reports are like he was much more financially stable. 
So I think that's what she was more interested in. I see. So anyway, this guy was from Texas and she moved on down to, to Texas. Yeah, to Texas and left Richard and his younger sister Carolyn with one of their older sisters uh-huh. so they could finish out the school year and then move on down to Santo, Texas, oh, okay. which is like outside Dallas. It was rural, I think. All right. Yeah, I don't know how much better off our Carl was because they spent like the next 10 or the the next 10 years moving for, to 12 different houses all in like shitty parts of Dallas. They moved to Dallas proper like after the kids got down there. And then another point that I saw everywhere but I don't know how relevant it is was that the eldest brother like the eldest sibling of the family was killed in a car accident in 1952 at the age of 23. So again I don't know if that really had much of an effect on Richard Hmm. because like they didn't live anywhere near him. He was a lot older so I don't know but I just figured I'd mention it. Now Richard and Carl the stepdad fucking hated each other. Hmm. This guy was abusive called him names called him a gutter rat which I think was like an old fashioned really harsh thing to say you know. He was just calling him a waster and the two were constantly fighting so in order to get back at him Richard started to steal his drink <laughs> at the age of 12. Good he on would him. like yeah like what I assume was that you know just sneaking a tipple here or there but that actually led to a really bad drinking habit by the time he was 15 he was getting drunk almost every day. Well I mean I think that's why they say you really shouldn't have kids drink alcohol before like a certain age because I think it it stops their development and they can and they're more inclined to develop an addiction yeah maybe which was i i that's why i regret drinking at 13 because i'm like i feel like i could have been a lot smarter yeah yeah (laughs) had i not drank so early could have been a doctor if it wasn't for those six cans around the back of the church (laughs) i remember the first time i drank it was a budweiser one can of budweiser and i was drunk off one can me and the lad. And it was a regular can, not like one of those tall boys. Oh, like a regular American can. Yeah. Um, yeah, me and the guys drank, split one can of Excelsior beer. <laughs> what the yeah, hell is like, that? Cost, is it blue? It sounds blue. <laughs> no, nah, it cost um, 88 and a half cent. What? Yeah, I can't remember. It was like, it, they only sold them in four packs. And one Ow. of the guys <laughs> stole it from their parents. And we, yeah, drank it around the back of the church and felt deadly oh i'm more i'm more surprised at the fact that it was that you guys had half pences no we didn't it was only sold in a four pack so it was like a round number oh but when you divided it up or some bullshit i can't remember anyway we're getting (laughs) off track maybe that has something to do with our next point his development him not developing properly he was an all right student for a little while but then like around the age of 12 13 he really started to struggle and was just terrible so he refused to speak in class he was a very very shy kid mm-hmm. apparently he also had a fear of people staring at him i don't know about that but he did need glasses and refused to wear them so like that to me i don't know how bad his eyesight was but i'm sure it made it a lot harder to read and learn if you can't see what the fucking is written on the board or in front of you or whatever. Anyway, he made it to the eighth grade, which he repeated, repeated, repeated 
and then dropped out after the first semester of ninth grade. So I think that's what when you're like 14. Yeah. Or anyway, 14, 15. Yeah. Yeah. Which would have made him 16 because he repeated the grade. Anyway, his first arrest came at age 13 for trespassing. But after he dropped out of school, he started hanging around with a much older crowd. And they taught him how to like pick locks and use his switchblade for, you know, that. And like they also introduced him to pills. How to be a shit. Yeah, basically just general hoodlummery. He's just a prick, basically. Yeah. He started frequenting prostitutes and had some one night stands, apparently, with the older girls that he was now hanging out with. And somewhere along the line, maybe someone made fun of him or something like that. I don't know. But this is where his contempt for, for women really started. Mm. Well, they probably laugh at his, at his equipment. I mean, yeah, like if you're, you know, older girls and he's only like a 16 year old kid, younger, maybe. Anyway, I don't know. His list of misdemeanors was already pretty extensive by the time he was 20. And some of the crimes included shoplifting, drunken disorderly, indecent exposure and whatever else goes along with just being a drunken shithead, you know. Mm. So Zipperin, Marvin Zipperin was a uh, like a county psychiatrist that was assigned to him. We'll learn a little bit more about him later on. But yeah, through therapy sessions, he eventually helped Speck to remember that on three separate occasions as a teenager in Dallas, he had been knocked out cold by blunt force trauma. Oh, shit. Yeah. At least three occasions. And one of them was when he actually fell out of a tree and got knocked out. All he needs is just to... Start like, pissing the bed. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's no reports of him doing that or not doing that. So, anyway. And uh, mutilating and killing animals. Yeah, no reports of that either, to mm. be honest. But that's not to say it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, he, he dressed the party. He had, like, hair slicked back. Started getting tattoos. And, again, just looked like a little shit. A regular John Travolta from Greece. Yeah, like a little <laughs> greaser. But he also had, like, heavily pockmarked, pockmarked skin. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure that didn't help with the old bullying and whatever else. Yeah, they probably call him Pizza Face or something. <laughs> Jesus Christ, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of his... or uh, Yeah, the one kind of like his main tattoo was Born to Raise Hell. And oh. it was on his forearm. Which, to be fair, I'm surprised I haven't already gotten that. Like, <laughs> it's just one of those like generic, yeah. oh, this looks so cool. But apparently like he was... A complete no, well, not apparently. It's a fact. He was a complete not a coward. Mm. Oh God! Yeah, still super shy and all that. It was only when he had drink and drugs in him that he had this bravado. And even then, he would only fight if he had a knife or a gun. Mm. Like if he was just bare hands, Richard, no fucking way. Like bare he would hands, run Richard. the other way. But his real skill was in manipulation. He apparently could turn on the charm like nobody's business. So as oh. soon as he would get arrested. But a cops are and he turned into like, oh, no, I'm such a good boy. All this bollocks. Oh, that's dangerous. Yeah. And his mom, this is where I kind of started getting a bit confused. Even though she was said to be like cold to him and like super strict. Anytime he got in trouble, anytime she'd be there to bail him out straight away. Hmm. Yeah. So like he'd be spent, you know, like two or three nights in prison or in jail, that kind of thing. She'd be there like bailing him out straight away. So in 1961, he met a poor, unfortunate 15-year-old girl at the state fair. 
named Shirley Annette Malone. She was pregnant within three weeks and so they got married and moved into Speck's house with his mom, sister and sister's husband. The mom and stepfather had split up by now. I don't know at what point but they did. Shirley gave birth to a little girl on July 5th 1962. Robbie Lynn Speck. Richard at the time was in jail serving a 22 day sentence for disturbing the peace. Hmm. She didn't know that. She didn't know that? No. Who? The, he the just, girlfriend? Yeah. He just... He just like, vanished and just she was didn't just didn't come like, home one night, yeah. What the fuck? So, at this point, he actually had a fairly decent job. I think probably the mom was like, you know, you got to go and do right by this girl. And they had their... They moved into their own apartment as well by this stage. He was actually working for the 7-Up Bottling Company at the time but every week like when he got paid he would go out and spend his whole check on hookers and drink yeah this was his priority Mm. he was a horrible bastard to Shirley convinced she was sleeping around on him right that again this is like his manipulation thing he basically used this as an excuse to punish her Mm. but like he wasn't just violent toward her he would show up outside the house with another lady in his car. And the documentary I watched, you know, like these straight-laced documentaries, they were all like, he would bring his lady friends to the front <laughs> of the house. And, uh, but yeah, whether they were prostitutes, whether they were forced into the car, I don't know, but he would sit outside making out and groping them and all that, making a big song and dance about it. Yeah. And openly laughing at Shirley. And then he would just piss off again and go do his drinking or drugging or whatever he was doing. Mm. He also refused to pay her medical bills from when she gave birth. Fuck. I was like, fuck my, like, I know you weren't there, but like, yeah, you know, she, she is a kid. Anyway, that was just another random fucking fact of this guy's a sack of crap. So in July 1963, he was convicted of forgery and burglary. I served 16 months in the state penitentiary. Mm. When he got out, it was like he was like charged up or something. Right. He got like someone just flicked a switch. He became violent towards Shirley, started demanding sex four or five times a day. And if she didn't comply, he would beat her. He would slap her, or choke her, whatever. What the fuck? Yeah. That's so strange. I know. I, literally, this is how he came out. So I don't even like sex four to five times a day. Well, that's, that's nice to know. I mean, I'm not over here demanding it either. <laughs> <laughs> um, Give me sex. Yeah, but... So, he came out of prison like this, like this fucking weird sexually charged deviant. And apparently, he was like reading the newspaper one day, reading some like horrific headline. And he was saying like, I'm going to make headlines one day. This is going to be me all over this paper. I, like, loved this new criminal lifestyle that he had. I think he was just, like, reveling in the fact that he was, like, the bad boy from the movies or something. Mm. One week after his release, he attacked a woman in the parking lot outside of her building, wielding a 17-inch carving knife. Luckily, she started screaming, and he legged it. How big is 17 inches? Goddamn. Like, yeah, big. But, yeah, as soon as she started screaming, he ran. Mm. Like he, this guy is a chicken shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm glad that he ran. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, but I think it's yeah. Um, 
you know, worth pointing out. Anyway, he didn't even make it far. The police caught him. And pretty soon he was in custody. He claimed he couldn't remember anything because he was like blackout. So they didn't charge him for attempted rape or murder. Only aggravated assault. What the fuck? Yeah. Now, bearing in mind, he was only out of prison one week. Yeah. So. Well, that's great. Uh, just commit any murder and just say you don't remember. And yeah. You get a oh, it wasn't charge. my fault. I was hammered. What the fuck? That's so dumb. Yeah. And that's not even the worst part about this. He was given another 16-month sentence, but it was to run concurrently with his current parole violation. And someone fucked up the paperwork somewhere, so he ended up only having to serve the length of his current parole violation, or current parole. So he only served like five or six months. Wow. And he was back out again. This next bit is directly from the book... The crime, uh, no, the crime of the Century, Richard Speck and the Murders That Shock the Nation, which I didn't read. I didn't have time to read, but it looks fantastic. After his release from prison, Speck worked for three months as a driver for the Patterson Meat Company and had six accidents with his truck before he was fired for failing to show up for work. Wow. Six accidents in three months. In December 1965, on the recommendation of his mother, Speck who was by then separated from Malone, moved in with a 29-year-old divorced woman. She was a bartender at his favourite bar, Ginny's Lounge, and needed someone to babysit her three children. Why Speck's mom thought he would be a good candidate for like babysitting these kids, I don't know. But this lady also happened to be an ex-professional wrestler. (laughs) The most random fucking thing. I tried to verify this. Couldn't find anything. Do you think maybe he was like, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. So I'm going to send him to basically a surrogate mother who already has kids. So maybe she'll she'll be okay with another one. Maybe. Or maybe (laughs) she was thinking like this chick used to wrestle. Yeah. She'll be able to handle him. So in, in January 1966, Shirley filed for divorce. That same month, Speck stabbed a man with a knife in Ginny's lounge. He was charged with aggravated assault, but a defense attorney hired by his mom was able to get the charge reduced to disturbing the peace. Speck was fined $10, but was jailed for three days after failing to pay the $10 fine. How much money is $10 in the 60s? I don't know. It's a lot, but it's not enough that I would go, oh, fuck it. I'll just spend three days in jail. So this, right, this goes to show how smart this guy was. In March of 1966, Speck bought a car, robbed, bought a car, right? Mm. Robbed 70 cartons of cigarettes from a grocery store and then sold the cigarettes from the car that he just bought in the grocery store car park where he just robbed the cigarettes from. (laughs) That's not even the dumbest part. He then just abandoned the car. He was like, oh, cigarettes are sold. I better leave. Left the car in the lot. I'm pretty sure. And then when the police showed up, they were like, oh, it's Richard Speck's car. I better go find him. Oh, side note. Uh, $10 in the 60s is around between 80 and $90. I'm but, sure his mom probably would have paid that from if he yeah. asked. If she, Any- could defend, if she could pay for an attorney. Pay yeah. for an attorney, yeah. Anyway, so they issued a warrant for his arrest. Speck found out about this and he just dipped back to Illinois. So back in Illinois, he stayed with his older sister in Chicago. 
And then he headed back to Monmouth, which is the town where, not where he was born, but where he spent most of his childhood. He convinced his family that he was on the straight and narrow and his brother got him a job sanding plasterboard and they also got him like cheap room and board at a family friend's house. But one local resident said he, he was just a different cut of person than we were used to in our town. He was a stranger and dressed kind of flashy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he managed to keep his head down for a couple of weeks. But on hearing that Shirley had remarried only two days after the divorce was granted, he went off the rails. He quit his job, moved into the Christie Hotel in downtown Monmouth and buried himself in drinking pills. And this is the one who had his baby, right? Yeah, that's Shirley. Like, that's his... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his only wife. I forgot. Yeah, yeah, okay, that they were married. All right. Um, it's just a lot of information. Sometimes, like, yeah, I'm telling like you, man, it's, overload. and not just that, I think it's because I, it's that whole drinking at 13, man, it's really <laughs> biting me in the ass right now. <laughs> well, at the end of March, he was out drinking with some new pals that he had made in Monmouth that thought he was kind of too flashy. Mm. And he started bragging about how he had almost killed this lady back in Texas. And like this lady in the parking lot outside her, her the one with the 17 inch knife yeah so he starts bragging about her or whatever even though he didn't almost kill her he ran away like a little bitch like a bitch and he starts showing off this eight inch hunting knife oh damn yeah so pretty soon after this they were locked up and he allegedly or after he allegedly threatened someone in the toilets with this knife a few days later april 2nd or 3rd Speck broke into the home of Virgil Harris, a 65-year-old woman in Monmouth. Virgil arrived home from a babysitting gig around 1am to find him waiting with a knife in her house. He spoke softly, telling her that he wouldn't harm her if she just did as she was told. Uh, He then proceeded to blindfold and rape her. When he was done, he sliced up her house coat and tied her up. He went through her house, stole from her, including the $2.50 that she had just made that night from babysitting, and then left. Thankfully, she had a pretty good description of him, a six-foot-tall white man who was very polite and spoke very softly with a southern drawl. This basically led police straight to him because this was a small town in Illinois and he was one of few men with like a southern drawl. Like. But when they questioned him, this is where it starts to get hazy. They questioned him and he said that he wasn't feeling well and he had to go home. I think they found him at work, right? So the police told him, okay, well, you know, don't leave town. You're still under suspicion and we'll be back in touch. A week later, Mary Catherine Pierce, a 32-year-old barmaid who worked at her brother-in-law's pub, Frank's Place, which was in downtown Monmouth, was last seen leaving the pub at around 20 past 12 on April 9th. She was reported missing on April 13th and her body was found that day in an empty, it said hog house. It's like a pigsty. An empty hog house behind the pub. She had died from a blow to her abdomen that ruptured her liver. What the fuck? Yeah, literally a punch to the gut. Damn. Now, Speck had been seen at Frank's place Uh, like a few times and he had actually worked in the construction of these empty hog houses 
only the month before. So Monmouth police again briefly questioned him about Pierce's death. So this is where I think reports start to get a little bit mixed up because this happened so close together. So I don't know whether he was just suspect number one or whether they actually questioned him twice. But again, they told him not to leave town. And when they went to where he was staying, which was the Christie Hotel, this was on April 19th, they found he had left the hotel a few hours earlier, carrying his suitcases and saying he was just going to the laundromat. But instead, he had actually left town. But I, I, in my head, this is funny. Like, just this random Texan guy. He's like, oh, just going down to the laundromat. <laughs> <laughs> For whoever's listening out there. But anyway, they couldn't find him. But nothing else was said about that. Um, that murder. That murder, yeah. So I don't. I think they just couldn't pin it on anybody. But it's pretty likely, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, when they searched his room, they found a radio and costu- costume jewellery belonging to Virgil Harris and other items that had been reported missing by locals earlier that month when their houses got burgled. So we went back to his sister's apartment in Chicago. His sister, who had previously been registered as a pediatric nurse until she met her husband and had two little girls. And they all lived in this apartment. He told them that the mafia, or some gang, had been trying to force him to sell drugs in Monmouth, but he refused, and now he was in danger for trying to be the good person. And so he he had to leave town, and that's why he's here. Now, the sister and her husband didn't believe him, but... His brother-in-law brought him down to the Coast Guard to get him work as an apprentice seaman. Yes. (laughs) So by April 30th, he was sailing out on a boat. This lasted four days when he was found curled up in pain. The doctor on board realized that he needed an emergency appendectomy and radioed for a helicopter. They say that if he had been at one hour later, he would have been dead. Hmm. Yeah, it's And we wouldn't have been talking about him. Exactly. <laughs> That's he wild. was in the hospital recovering for two weeks, loving being waited on hand of foot by of these course. young nurses. He's a bitch. Yeah. He went back to his sister's for a few days after the hospital, but was back out on the ship by May 20th. This time around, he was stocked up on red birds, which were just these little red pills that he used to take. I'm thinking it was something like old school, like trucker speed. Like, speed seemed to be much easier to get back in the day. Yeah. And according to the union rep on the ship who was interviewed in this documentary, he would take, like, just a handful of these pills. Like, wouldn't count them or nothing like that. He would just take a handful of pills and uh, knock it back with some vodka. Yeah, so when the other guys were just, you know, like, having a beer or two in the evening, this guy was getting fucked up. Yeah. And he was a mess. Uh, exposing himself to other crewmates he even fell off the boat on one occasion right? <laughs> <laughs> I know, like hell man uh, but on June 14th he probably fell off he's like look I'm a seaman <laughs> my dick's out look at me look at my dick <laughs> um, but anyway on the on June 14th he got into a confrontation with one of the boats one of the boats officers uh, supposedly pulling a knife on him kid just loved knives yeah. And he was put ashore the following day. So this guy who served as a union rep for the boat seemed like a normal, nice guy. He actually tried to help Richard. He was like, look, I can get you your job back. Like, 
we'll sort this mess out. And Richard was just like a mumbling mess. And he just kept saying that he didn't understand. So the rep was like, I don't know what he didn't understand. So they think that they just didn't want, he didn't want anyone doing a background check on him, basically, because he had all these priors and outstanding warrants. So he took his check and he went back to Chicago. Not going back to his sister's this time, however, he spent a week in a flop house before heading on to Houghton in Michigan. I want to say I might have gotten that wrong, but I'm nearly sure it was Michigan. And there he hooked up with Judy Lacanimi, a 28-year-old nurse's aide who he had met while he was in hospital for his appendectomy. So what Judy had to say about these two weeks that he was there, she said it was two weeks of pure bliss. Judy said that Speck was the perfect gentleman, taking her for nice dinners, buying her all these like lovely gifts and just had a great time. She then gave him $80 and sent him on his way until like she gave him $80 being like, oh, here until you get back working again. So I, I don't know, like it's just sound, it's a strange situation. Yeah, it is. Because where did he get that money? Well, that was his last paycheck. Oh, and then she had to bail him out. Yeah. At the end of it. So anyway, she gave him this money until he got work on another boat anyway. And in the meantime, he went back to his sister's place. Now, he was really taking the piss at this stage. Hmm. And for the next two weeks, basically all he did was nap on their couch and read comic books. His brother-in-law took him down to the National Maritime Union Hir- National Maritime Union Hiring Hall to apply for a seaman's card to get him back out on a boat and out of their fucking house. Yeah. So his brother-in-law had served time in the Navy mm-hmm. and now had like some other good job. Mm-hmm. But that's why I think he knew people down there. So we like going out of their way to help him out. So anyway, on the 8th of July, he went back again, his brother-in-law driving him down there and he collects his card. And this means that he can now register for work on these ships. And he registers for a ship bound for South Vietnam, but someone with more experience got it instead. And this was like frustrating. So on Monday, the 11th, his sister just kicked him out, right? She had just had enough, whatever happened it was the straw that broke the camel's back and he spent the night in a rooming house before going back to the NMU hiring hall on July 12th where he got work on a boat but he had to make a 30 minute trip from where he was and by the time he got to the boat that job had actually been taken as well so now he's getting really pissed off because he goes back to the NMU hiring hall and they're closed for the day mm. after him doing all this running around He's finally run out of money and that night he has to sleep in some unfinished house up the road. So Wednesday, July 13th rolls around and he goes back to the NMU, super pissed off with all this running around and they can't get him work again. So he calls his sister, bitching and moaning. She comes down with her husband and they end up parking up in a little grove next to Luella Elementary School, across the road from some townhouses which were used by the South Chicago Community Hospital for their student nurses. So they park up here and they're talking for like a half an hour or so and then the sister gives them $25 to get them somewhere to stay for the night and feed them until, you know, another job opens up on another ship. So when they left, 
he heads down to the shipyard inn and checks in. He then took what he had left and went on the drink, going from pub to pub. This was his day, planned out for him. Like. Now, Ella May Hooper, a 53-year-old lady, just happened to be in every pub that he was in that day. He had been following her. Literally, like, she'd go in, have a couple of drinks here, leave, go to the next pub, and he'd be, like, just skulking around, coming back after her. Well, that's probably why she was in every pub that yeah, he was in. <laughs> Thought I was being clever. <laughs> um, so, anyway, he'd been following her all day, and at around 6 o'clock, he threatened her with a knife and forced her up into his room, where he raped her and stole the twenty-two caliber pistol from her purse. He then went on to have dinner on his own. I don't. I honestly don't know what happened there. Like, they just parted ways after this. He went to have dinner at, like, some local restaurant and returned to the shipyard inn where he continued to drink until around 20 past 10 when he left dressed all in black with his switchblade knife and Ella May Hooper's pistol. He went back to the student nurse accommodation which he had been eyeing up for the last few days while looking for work at the nearby NMU. He managed to break in quietly using his knife and snuck up the stairs undetected. He came to a door and knocked. Inside was 23-year-old Filipina exchange student Corazon Amuro. She opened the door and was greeted by Speck holding the gun to her face. He led her down the hall, woke up five more nurses before leading them all into one room where he told them to sit while he lit a cigarette. He was very polite, friendly and laughing and told them all he just wanted their money before he skipped town. Around 11.40, 22-year-old Gloria Davy was dropped off by her fiancé after a date and was quickly corralled in with the rest of the girls. These girls were all student nurses and had been trained on how to handle patients who were, you know, unhinged so they were all keeping things light-hearted and agreeing with everything he said they were talking amongst themselves you know when he was doing whatever he was doing and yeah they were like literally putting their training to use and they thought he's just gonna rob us and then that's it and this whole time he's just sitting there smoking he made them put all their belongings into a bag so he could take it later and speck even left the room at one point because the front doorbell rang and he went down to check it, but just as he got to the door and saw that there was no one there, another doorbell rang from the back of the house. So he went to check that door, and there was no one there, and then the front doorbell rang again, and he went back there, and there was no one there. So he went back upstairs, and we'll get back to that later. Eventually he stood up, and he opened up his knife and started cutting a bed sheet into strips. He tied up all seven of them, and around 12.15... He took Pamela Wilkening and started to lead her out of the room. This was the final straw for her. She like spit in his face, started telling him what she really thought of him. And when she sees him in the police lineup, she'll be the first one to pick him out. All this stuff. But unfortunately, this didn't help her situation at all. Like it just infuriated him. So he took her to another room, gagged her and he was about to rape her when in walked two more nurses. Suzanne Farris and Mary Ann Jordan. Now they had been at Mary Ann's house that evening because Suzanne was actually engaged to Mary Ann's brother. 
Marianne had previously lived in the apartment but had moved back home and Suzanne had asked her to sleep over that night so they could discuss wedding stuff. When they realised what was happening it was too late. Speck killed all three of them, stabbing them with his switchblade and then he decided he would just have to kill all of them now to leave no witnesses. But he took his time and over the next four hours he took each girl out of the room where he had held them one by one and brutally murdered each of them. And this wasn't a case of like, oh my god, I fucked up. I'm just purely getting rid of witnesses. He viciously beat, stabbed and strangled these poor girls. Washing his hands between each murder too, which is just like even more twisted. He was still trying to keep some like level of like composure or something. So he did this five times. He left Gloria Davy until the end. He claimed that she had been flirting with him. He cocked his pistol, held it to her face and forced her to get undressed. He dragged her downstairs where he savagely raped and strangled her to death. He then searched the house one more time for any valuables before he left, ditching his knife in the river on the way home. The girls he murdered were Patricia Matusek, Nina Joe Schmel, Pamela Wilkening, Suzanne Farris, Marianne Jordan, Merlita Gargulo, Valentina Pazion, and Gloria Davy. Corazon Amuro, or Amuro, I'm very sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. She had actually managed to roll under one of the beds amid all the confusion. She waited there, praying frantically until 6am, when she thought she was finally safe. And she stumbled out onto the street, sobbing and yelling, Oh my God, they're all dead. So she said when the murdering was actually going on, none of the girls screamed. She heard like nothing, like none of them protested or anything as he was taking them out of the rooms. They were just trying to keep him as calm as they could. She just heard like muffled groans from the rooms and didn't know what she was, what he had actually done until she got out from under the bed that morning and found all of them. So it was just horrific for her. The person ringing the doorbell the previous night, Luisa Silverio. Silverio? She had also been invited for a sleepover, but got impatient when nobody came to the door, so she just went back home. She rang the doorbell three different times and still managed to get home safely. Wow. One very lucky lady. Yeah. Speck awoke that day, believing that he had committed the perfect crime leaving no evidence or witnesses. He was only about a mile away and was back down having a drink in the bar when he heard the news. He freaked out, called a cab and went to some place basically to lead the police away from him and then went to like the other side of town where his plan was to do another runner. But by the time he got to uh, like basically Skid Row and got into another gross hotel, it was a 90 cent a night hotel with chicken wire on the ceiling i don't i'm not even sure how that works is that to keep the the chickens from falling from the ceiling okay i've got no idea all right but he checked in under the name r franklin and turns out he had actually left 33 fingerprints back at the house because he wasn't careful at all he just in his mind he was like oh no no this is fine and these were soon linked to him because of his lengthy criminal record. 
And when police showed a picture of him to Corazon, she was able to positively identify him. They made this a huge deal in the media. A lot of people were like shitting on the police commissioner at the time because he came straight out with uh, Speck's picture and said, this is the man we need, even though he technically had no solid proof at this stage. But like he was right, you know, so at this stage... Speck is sitting in this hotel and he realizes he cannot leave. So still holed up in his hotel, on July 16th, he downed a bottle of wine, smashed it and slit his wrists with the glass. As he lay there bleeding to death, the hotel's handyman found him and called an ambulance. He was rushed to death. (laughs) He was rushed to hospital, covered in blood. Now, they didn't realize who he was until they were actually cleaning the blood off his arm and they saw the tattoo. Born to raise hell. Now, at this point, I'm going to reference, and that's why we drink, because they actually got a listener story, like, within the last month about this. The doctor who was attending him at the time claimed that he saw this Born to Raise Hell tattoo and thought, by gosh, that's him, and went to call the police. And according to one of and that's why we drinks listeners, it was actually her aunt who was a nurse saw the tattoo, turned to the doctor and said, oh my God, it's him. And then the doctor just took all the credit for it. I literally saw the doctor being interviewed by the reporters earlier on and I just thought, you fucking... Anyway. All right, so spread the word, everyone. (laughs) Yeah, It was not that doctor. This man is a fraud. He's a big fat phony. (laughs) Um, Another fuck up that I read earlier was he had actually been drinking with like just homeless people that day because that's where he was hanging out. It was just like a shittier part of town. And one of the guys he was drinking with finally realized who he was and he went to a payphone and he called the police at 9.30 to report it. Police received the call. The call was in their records, but they just didn't bother. They just never went to check it out. So good job, police. And then there was some more bureaucratic bollocks here. I don't know what happened, but... Anyway, Speck wasn't actually questioned for three weeks after his arrest. Now, that to me just seems strange. Don't know what happened. But when he was finally questioned, he said that he had been drinking all day and had received an injection of speed by a stranger at around 8pm and couldn't remember anything after that. But this was like, you know, he was trying to go for the insane plea. But he was deemed sane at the time of the crime and competent to stand trial. And while he was awaiting trial, he had two sessions a week with psychiatrist Dr. Marvin Zaporin, who I talked about earlier with the head injuries. And it turned out this psychiatrist was actually just using him to write a book purely for his own profit. And he was subsequently fired from the prison and none of his evidence was allowed to be used in court because it was all for personal gain. Mm. So, yeah, yep. Anyway, according to Zipperin, during one of these sessions, Speck actually held a razor to his throat and said something along the lines of, if I'm such a monster, why don't I just kill you right here and now? To which the doctor replied, because you don't have a quart of vodka and eight red birds in you. Oh, got him. And Speck just kind of went, yeah, I suppose you're right. Now, again, that's according to the doctor. He might be, you know building that up a little bit but anyway i mean but it's a good burn 
It definitely was, yeah. <laughs> and it also just further proves Speck's fucking cowardice. Yeah, yeah. Speck had also confessed his crimes to the doctor in the hospital when he was cleaning up his slit wrists. He told him everything that he had done. But because he was sedated at the time, they couldn't actually use that evidence in trial. So luckily they still had Corazon as an eyewitness. And when she was asked if she could identify the killer, she rose from her seat in the witness box, walked directly in front of Speck, pointed her finger at him, nearly touching him, and said, that is the man. So good on you, Corazon. He was sentenced to death via electric chair. But in November of 1971, he was resentenced to 400 to 1200 years in prison or eight consecutive sentences of 50 to 150 years and denied pro- parole within seven minutes of his first hearing in 1976. He became known as the Birdman because he had two sparrows in his cell, which there was a scene in Mindhunter. Which I totally forgot about because it's a long time since I actually watched that. Richard Speck was in that apparently. And in this scene, he has a bird and he's told that he can no longer keep it. So he turns and he throws the bird into a fan. And it just gets obliterated. So I just read on one of these like, 10 fun facts you didn't know about Mindhunter. That's true. He did do that. He just killed this little bird. But it wasn't in front of John Douglas and Robert K. Ressler who guys from Mindhunter are based off it was just in front of a regular prison guard so I don't know how long he was known as the Birdman for (laughs) anyway he was caught with drugs and hooch a good bit but every time he got in trouble he just had this like well how am I going to get in trouble I'm here for 1200 years so he just didn't really give a fuck he had one interview while he was in prison and it was with Bob Green of the Chicago Tribune in 1978 during which Speck said that he was expecting to get out of prison before the year 2000 and he was hoping to run his own grocery store. He said that at the time of the killings, he had no feelings, but that he had changed. Quote, I had no feelings at all that night. They said there was blood all over the place. I can't remember. It felt like nothing. I'm sorry as hell for those girls and for their families and for me. If I had to do it over again, it would be a simple house burglary. His final thought for the American people was just tell them just tell them to keep up their hatred for me. I know it keeps up their morale and I don't know what I'd do without it. He wasn't a bit sorry for any of this. His time in prison was fucking mental. Okay? Everyone who knew him said that he was only ever brave when he had a, a weapon, right? So when he got into prison and he was on death row, there was like these other serious like heavies who had already killed three prison guards and you know whatever these guys didn't give a fuck and he was just a rapist to them so he was so scared that they ended up moving him to the isolation i want to say ward wing i guess and while he was there he ended up asking the guard if he could paint his cell he did such a good job painting his cell that they ended up letting him paint the whole wing And then this led to him just being kind of like a general handyman. He would like clear out the drains and shit. But when he was cleaning out these drains or pipes or whatever, he was actually storing raisins in jars in them. And he was fermenting the raisins. He was making his own moonshine. 
and he also started smuggling cigarettes and in my notes it changed to snuggling cigarettes and that's just <laughs> fucking funny <laughs> um, so <laughs> so he became known as the drunken painter of stateville but this only helped him with his prison like quote-unquote celebrity status and like he just loved the attention which in turn gave him this form of safety among the prison guards and the inmates this fucking video came out okay it was sent to a chicago news anchor in 1996 and it had been made in 1988 the inmates had like smuggled a video camera into the prison in 1988 this is like an over the shoulder thing and they were basically just making like home videos in their cell so speck is in the video with some like smallish black guy now speck was like six foot one so he was a big enough dude and this other guy seems to be like his handler Mm -hmm. and you know in one minute he's got his leg over the other guy and then the other guy's got his leg over him and you know, they're, they're really close. And then next thing, he's like just snorting coke off this dish. Like this, like a little tray. But it's the guy is giving it to him. And he spills a bit on the guy's leg and he just bends right over, sniffs it off his leg. Really weird. Then someone behind the camera is like asking him questions. And they're not like outright making fun of him. But you know, he's the butt of the joke. And... After asking him if he likes being fucked by men, Speck says, sure. And they say, have you always been liked being fucked by men? And he's like, oh, yeah. Then they tell him to take his shirt off. And he proceeds to take his shirt off. And he reveals a pair of women's tits. What? So he's been smuggling in hormone treatment and taking them to literally to alter his body to make him look more appealing. So, to me, this all goes back to him being a fucking coward. He's like, well, I know I'm not going to be able to fight these people. But if I let them have their way, I can get whatever I want. That's so weird. Yeah, and it's clearly working for him. One of the other guys says to him, oh, like, what underwear have you got on today? And he's like, blue silk or something. He's like, oh, take, take off your pants, show us. Like. So then this guy is sitting there in his underwear with his tits out. And it's just strange altogether so apparently the original video was like over two hours long and they watched it when the news anchor saw it he like sent it to like somewhere i don't fucking know like the courts or something and they packed the courthouse or wherever it was to all sit around and watch it but apparently after a little while into it speck actually just starts sucking some guy's dick and everyone just turned off the tape after that i would have to watch it i mean like if that's how crazy it was getting can you imagine how nuts it got (laughs) anyway there's (laughs) (laughs) so there is some speculation that the guys in this video were like his pimps but either way he seemed pretty happy at one point he says if they only knew how much fun i was having they'd turn me loose that's so bizarre yeah and when asked why he killed the nurses he said it just wasn't their night what a dick. Yeah. One of the guards said that if the prison was blown down in a hurricane, Speck would be the only one who would try who would not try to escape. Like he flourished in prison. Oh, that's kinda like Catherine Knight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So anyway, he died on December 5th, 1991 of a heart attack one day before his 50th birthday. His sister had his ashes scattered in a secret location because she figured if she had like a memorial spot for him that it would just be desecrated. Is that the word? Yeah. The Chicago Tribune actually has a lovely article with pictures from the girls' families that they only found like not too long ago. Uh, One of the girls' brothers had a flood in his basement, went downstairs and found this box of pictures. So it tells like little bios about all the girls who died that night and it's really nice so i would check it out if you're interested my sources this week were an a and e documentary that was pretty hefty packed full of cool interviews and stuff biography.com murderpedia ludicdespair.blogspot.com which was referencing a book called born to raise hell the untold story of richard speck crimeandinvestigation.co.uk Wikipedia, Vice, and the Chicago Tribune. So sorry if I rambled a bit there, but I felt like there was a lot to uh, a lot to get through because I felt, you know, even after he was incarcerated, there was just so much more. And we'll have to watch those uh, videos later on of him, and I can show you. Like it's just so fucking strange. No, thank you. Like I couldn't find the whole thing. I don't know if it exists, like on the internet, but like the different clips are all over the internet so that's crazy yeah and and we're actually used in that documentary as well well that was a lot yeah i'm gonna sit back i'm gonna open up my old man cardigan Mm -hmm. that i have and uh i'm gonna drink the rest of my energy drink and listen to your story now okay so my sources are kathman dua and beyond Spectral Code X, Guide Gecko, Asia One, and Foreigners in Taiwan. So this is about the Old Lou family mansion. Because our listeners said they wanted something spooky, so I decided to go that route. Yeah, our listeners specifically said this week it was like 78% wanted spooky, 22% wanted true crime. And I went for true crime. So sorry, guys. (laughs) But the thing is, like... Spooky stuff is intricately involved with true crime. I feel like you wouldn't, especially when it comes to houses, you know what I'm saying? Like hauntings and shit. Yeah, you can't have a good story without some with, like, there has powerful to be crime behind it. Death. Yeah, yeah, basically a crime or like some abuse or some shit. So the old Lou family mansion, uh, it's also known as... Mingsheng Ghost House. It's one of the most famous haunted locations in Taiwan. Cool. So basically, this is the house that, like, if you wanted to impress your friends, uh, you know, prove how brave you are. Oh, you would go. Or how big your nuts are, how big your vagina is. (laughs) You would go to this house. She's got the biggest vagina I've ever seen. Um. So it's situated in the countryside near Chai, a provisional city in the southwest region of Taiwan. This area, when when it was built, it was scantily littered with a few inhabited tin shacks and the Yihan Mountain Cemetery. It was built in 1929 
in a classic Baroque style for Lu Rong Yu. It was built with three stories and a fourth story tower at the top. And I mean, it's a massive house. It's a red brick house. It's really pretty. Like you could tell in its heyday, it was just like, you know how like how you were when you were driving around Rice? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look River at fucking mansions. It was it's Home like, alone houses. Yeah, it was like that, but in Taiwan. So, again, it was built for Lu Rong Yu and his family, and it was a wealthy family. So, naturally, they could afford to live there and have, exactly. it, and have it built for them. <laughs> so, there's a popular rumor about this house, and it's linked to this family. And they're apparently the only family that's ever lived there. The family consisted of a man and his wife, four sons, and three daughters, the story goes that the man of the house, Mr. Rong Yu, or we'll just call him Lu, okay. had an affair with one of his servants, one of his many, many servants. The man's wife found out about the affair and tormented the maid every day afterwards. Yeah, because it was clearly her fault. Like Right. The maid had it with the mistreatment and she jumped to her death down the well located on the property. Jesus. Now, that's what some people say. Other people say that the, I guess, the man's wife murdered her and threw the body down the well. Okay. So that's two stories. But shit went down afterwards, after her death. Every night after, you know, her passing... Her, uh, the maid's ghost would appear in front of the couple's bed. Oh. Yeah. Basically not letting them forget. Yeah. That it wasn't her fault and they still fucked here, up. bitch. Yep, still here. Another thing that also would happen is that the children would also see the ghost of the maid. But they would see her outside of their bedroom windows motioning and trying to get them to follow her. Oh, out into rough. the night. Yeah. <laughs> now, because this house has multiple stories, if these children were staying in the higher stories, that's even more grim. Because yeah, of it's course. Like, yeah. You know, another thing that would happen is in the mornings, they'd find muddy footprints inside the house. Don't even... like that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, don't. Like, like as if you would if there was if it was raining outside. Yeah. You know. If, yeah. But the night before would be clear, you know, no rain, really dry, which ties back into the well. where she's currently residing. In the 1950s, uh, after the Japanese rule over Taiwan ended, the family vacated the house. The Lu family themselves deny that this story's true, you know, about the death of the maid. Yeah. And that they actually moved downtown for business reasons. So... A plan was presented by Mingxiang Cultural Foundation to restore the building, but these plans were rejected by members of the Lu family. Now, this is what I found suspicious because why would you actively be against these restorative moves? Yeah, yeah, unless you had something to hide. Unless you had something to hide and... Something like that. Because I know in Taiwanese culture, people 
they it's not like they don't believe in ghosts they're not as cynical as people here in the u.s yeah yeah so i'm wondering if it has anything to do with the validity of this ghost story you know it's like if they try to restore this it might wake up because it, it could well very oh. well be that it maybe it didn't follow them when they left the house and them trying to kick up this shit that happened back in the day. It's like gonna like reanimate this ghost. Yeah, I thought they were just afraid they were gonna find a body. That too. Oh, okay. I'm just opening up <laughs> right, all these right, possible right. reasons. I mean, we can speculate all the, these things all day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, technically, we could because it's our podcast. Yep. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, believe what you will, right? Another story linked to this house has to do with some Japanese soldiers because as I mentioned before the how like Taiwan was under Japanese rule for some time yeah these Japanese soldiers were stationed at the house during World War two one night there was a soldier who was on watch and he saw a moving figure near the perimeter of the grounds and so he opened fire to it this commotion woke up the rest of the soldiers and they too started shooting into the night <laughs> because, I mean, they're like, oh, shit, there's yeah. someone out there. Ah, shoot the dark. By the time morning came, all these soldiers were dead. Oh. It appeared that they had all killed each other. Oh, shit. Weird how that happens, right? Yeah. It's weird. Like, they're in the house together shooting outwards, but somehow mm. they, you know what I mean? That's Something so strange. right here. Yeah. Anyways, when I was researching this house, there wasn't a lot of information. I fucking looked everywhere for, like, all sorts of shit. Oh, one last source, uh, Dark Memoirs. Oh, okay. Looking at the pictures, the house is huge. It's cool looking. As I mentioned before, brick everywhere. Brick everywhere. Right now, at the moment, it's covered in vines on the inside and out. Like, oh, nature is, like, reclaiming, reclaiming it slowly. It. Mm -hmm. There's no more glass in the windows anymore, and the wooden floorboards have rotted away. The stories have fallen away as well, so it's just, okay. like, this big, hollow thing of a wow. house. Yeah. Uh, basically, the house has been left to the mercy of typhoons that apparently Taiwan is prone to. Wow. Um termites and other scary nature things <laughs> <laughs> it's not uncommon to see abandoned taiwanese courtyard style homes like you you ever see like they're kind of houses that are like they're kind of in the shape of a staple oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah but it is not common to see a fucking three-story mansion abandoned yeah yeah which just adds to the eeriness of or even, yeah, the eeriness of the house and its history. Um, it adds to the mystique, if yeah, you will. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the property is surrounded by flatland and like a shit ton of rice paddies, just basically like rice farms. Yeah. The house itself has like a property wall and it's lined with trees as if it's trying to hide itself from everywhere else. The way it was designed like to for privacy is yeah was yeah. genius because right now that it's abandoned it's just so fucking bizarre Scary. yeah and the place isn't even gated or anything like the property owners don't mind 
anybody going to visit at any time. You can literally walk up anytime you like and walk around or whatever. Visitors who go to the mansion at night have reported hearing howling and screeching of ghosts. And of ghost? Ghosts. Oh. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. If you get too close to the well where the maid ended her life, it's said that you'll have bad luck for the rest of your days. Jesus. Some people have done so, and they've gotten into accidents, like car accidents or just, you know, just regular yeah, yeah. accidents that where they've gotten, like, really fucked, really up. fucked up, like, really hurt, and some have even died. And this has happened, like, shortly after their visit to the mansion. Illness also affects visitors who come close to the well. Yeah. Uh, the entrance to the house has some weird robot tin man as a decoration. It oh, just no. looks so out of place and it's painted in a way to make it look like a human. It's so strange. Absolutely not. <laughs> no fucking way. That's like uh, in Modern Family. Do you remember? I need to actually watch that program, but I remember seeing one episode where he has like a dog butler. Oh, yeah, you walk yeah. into the house. <laughs> it's funny and all when it's bright. Yeah. But not when you're walking around your house in the dark or anything I, like that. I'll always remember that. this one picture of, I don't know how true it is, but it was um, like the picture is of a lobster wearing a butler suit and he's holding a little tray. And on the tray <laughs> is like female hygiene products like tampons and pads. Yeah, yeah. And then... The picture is like my roommate made this. Like I, like I just found this in the bathroom, and she's asked her roommate what it was, and her roommate was like, "It's a crustacean menstruation station." <laughs> genius. I know. It's genius. <laughs> the impact that's made on my life. Yeah, I, I too remember that. Anyways, the closest establishment to the house is. A cafe that's like ghost themed, basically banking on Love it. banking on the lore and shit. Um, so at the moment, the house is for sale. Like it just got put for sale last year. Yeah, the real estate agent confirmed November nineteenth of this past year uh, that the current owner, property owners, are asking for. 13.5 million Taiwanese yen, which is 634,500 US dollars for the 13,343 square foot mansion. That seems quite pricey still. I mean, it could have have to do with like how famous it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because it is it like I I read a bunch of articles and they were all saying like it's unanimous for the people of Taiwan, like, this is the number one haunted spot. Okay, okay. Yeah. Fun fact, and I'll I'll end the story about the house here. Okay. There is a spray-painted picture of a cock and balls on the right side of the doorframe of the house in blue. Love it. I just wanted to add that in there. I love cock and ball art. <laughs> I have to say. Um... But yeah, we have actually got a handful of Taiwanese listeners, or at least people that listen from Thailand, Taiwan. Yes, Taiwan. Taiwan. We actually got Thailand people from Thailand listening today as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. But um, oh, which reminds me, 
Hello, everyone, our new listeners. <laughs> so, to our people in Taiwan specifically, like, let us know if you've heard of this house or, or if, if you've, you've been visited. there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there, there was a. I saw a YouTube video of some guy visiting there, and he took his little recorder thing. He got a lot of activity on there. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right on. So now I'm going to tell some Taiwanese ghost stories. Yes. They're uh, personal stories. So this one's called My Mom's Story. I am Taiwanese. My English is not very well. If the words fail to express what is meant, please pardon me. Okay. My story happened three years ago. It is in Chinese New Year. My friends and I went to a hot spring hotel to enjoy the vacation. The structure of our room is interesting. It's a mezzanine. The second floor is a normal bedroom, including a TV and a double bed. The first floor has two parts. One is Japanese-style room. Another is a big bathroom, including a toilet, shower, and a big hot spring bathtub. Nice. The point is there is no partition between the two parts. You can see the whole bathroom at the Japanese-style room, but there is a curtain separating each other. I was about to say, like, what the hell? Like, you're... Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Things happened in the night. My father and I slept on the second floor. My mother slept on the Japanese-style room. When I went out of... When I got out of bed to pee at in the morning, I found my mom wasn't in that Japanese-style room. When I came back to the second floor, I saw that my mom was sleeping near the double bed. In the morning we woke up, we asked my mom why she went to sleep on the second floor at night. She appeared to be mysterious and nervous and didn't say anything. She insisted she would tell us after leaving the room. When we ate breakfast at a restaurant, she told the thing that happened to her. Last night, she was a little difficult to sleep because there were noise and firecrackers nearby. In our culture, people play firecrackers in Chinese New Year. Eventually, she fell asleep. Then suddenly, she felt a numbness from her foot to her head. It felt very bad, and it was hard for her to move her body. So my mom started to read a six-word spell of Buddhism in silence. It didn't improve the situation, and she started to read the sounds. Then she... She started to hear the sounds. Then she could move her body. She daren't open her eyes. She just grabbed the bed quilt and rushed to the second floor. After the story, my dad and I laughed at her. <laughs> that's so fucked up. Because <laughs> that's what she needs after traumatic yeah, yeah. experience. <laughs> because it seems that she experiences paranormal events frequently in our family, such as when my mom was a child one day she peed in a bamboo forest. At the time, she saw a little Japanese child with a kimono watching her, and then he disappeared. Pervert. But at that time, Japanese colonizers retreated from our country at least 20 years ago. Another thing happened to my mom when she was young. One night, she walked home from the train station. When she walked on a bridge, she felt she was stuck. Many bicycles and cars passed through her normally, but she walked but she just walked around 
couldn't leave that bridge. Finally, she came home and was late for two, but she was two hours late. We call this situation ghost obstruct in our country. It means there's a ghost trying to trap someone at a certain place. That's interesting. That sounds a lot like the fairy rings from oh, yeah. Ireland. After all, my mom thought this event is in the ghost pressing bed. It's a proper noun in her country, too. It means, like it's a word, a ghost pressing on a sleeping person and to not let him move and talk. So basically sleep, sleep paralysis. paralysis, yeah. She said maybe someone died in that bathtub before, but we didn't think so. In our country, if someone died in a hotel, the staff would put flowers or hide a Taoistic or a Taoist magic figure in the room, but we didn't see anything like that. And besides my mom, nothing happened to me and my dad. So we think it's more possible to be the sleep paralysis. Nevertheless, afterwards, I think it's not very well to sleep in that Japanese-style room. Just imagining someone sleeping there alone at night, open, opening his eyes accidentally, and seeing the curtain floating by wind nearby and the empty bathroom, it's truly horrible. Gross. So from what I could gather, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good job on your English. Yeah. But yeah, that story was a... Uh... No, thank you. Yes. Yeah, good job on your English. I mean, sometimes my English sucks too, and that's my first language. Yeah, me too, me too. All right, so the second story. Yes. It's called The Lady in White. Lady in White. I was on a holiday to Taiwan. I lived in a beautiful bungalow that nobody was living inside. I lived there with my three children... Everything seemed to be in order until the second day I moved in. I was reading a book in bed, and when I saw a tall, beautiful lady, about a sub, about 178 centimeters tall, dressed in a white gown, gown. She had a sad expression on her face, and her eyes looked sad. Her feet were not touching the floor. I asked her what was wrong, but she just disappeared. Feeling more surprised and scared, I went to sleep. Before I went to sleep, though, I prayed. The next day, I woke up. I looked around for the lady, but she was not there. I went to eat breakfast and then told my cousins about it. They said that maybe I was dreaming. That night, I looked for the lady again. There she appeared again, her eyes gloomy, and her face had a sad expression. I asked her with a trembling voice, Well, why are you haunting the place? You should be telling me your problems. That's ballsy. Yeah, seriously. She showed me a photograph and I looked at it. There was a man in the photograph in the photograph and there was a lady strangled by the man. She then said that the man was her lover who had strangled her to death in that very same house. I kept the photograph then showed it to my cousins. My children and they were very shocked. Then they offered me to stay in their flat. <laughs> That's insane. So basically, if we go to Taiwan, we're going to be scared. Basically. Yes, and that was by Lucretia. Lucretia. And the story before was by X77. All right. So this week's listener story time. Loud. This week's user wishes to remain anonymous. 
So, Hip Hop Anonymous it is. This is my first story I'm submitting to you. Back when I was a little kid, I never liked traveling, especially to Nicaragua, where my parents are from. I think maybe because I'd always get sick there, it'd be super hot, and dealing with so many mosquitoes can take its toll on you, and using outhouses in the remote villages with the possibility of encountering a tarantula at night is not that fun. That sounds fucking horrific. No thank you. However, now it's different since I'm older and I can enjoy my time there. And also it's not the war-torn country it once was. Whenever we went, it was always the whole family. Mom, dad, my two brothers and my one sister. My other sister lives in Nicaragua, so she wasn't ever part of the trips from Canada to Nicaragua. One year it was different. I remember this trip the most because this time it was just me, my mom, my brother and sister. I remember bits and pieces of where we went and I remember us going to Las to La Castaña Airport in Managua. It's directly beside the Managua Airport. It's a small airport that flies to the more remote parts of the country. My parents would always get us to take the earliest flight from Managua to Puerto Cabezas. I always remember the mornings that we would head to that airport because it would be cool in the morning and the sky is usually a grey colour, as if the sun is slowly coming out. We normally stay a few days in Puerto Cabezas then head to a small indigenous village, Mosquito Indian Village. And yes, me and my family are Mosquito Indians from Nicaragua and speak the Mosquito language. Well, the trip this time was maybe early 90s, like 1995 maybe. I'm not too sure, but it was the usual trip in the sense of what we would go to do. This one time was a little different though. I remember it like it was yesterday. My mom woke us all up. We had things packed to leave for the airport in Puerto Cabezas to head to Managua. I was excited for this because it meant that we'd be back in Canada soon. The taxi arrived. It was your typical yellow taxi and I was going to the back seat and my mom was talking to the driver and my sister was standing in front of me. My brother was already inside the back and there was this silence. I could see my mom talking but I couldn't hear her and something made me look up into the sky. There was this neon pink swirl of light, like it was neon pink swirls and you could see black in between. Kind of hard to describe, but the pink was like something I've never seen before. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I saw this and the first thing I did was yell at my sister, look, look, <laughs> and she might have said what, but I could see the back of her head looking up. And then after that, all I remember is a flash of white light and nothing else. I don't even remember us getting back to Canada. Nothing. You might think it was just me imagining things or whatever, but there was a Dan Aykroyd interview on YouTube where he talks about seeing the exact same thing I did years before our trip, and it was a mass sighting. And he woke up at 3am, and something was telling him to go outside and look up. If you want the YouTube link, let me know. But I know what I saw, and I remember it like it was yesterday. There used to be a show, a show called Sightings, and it dealt with the paranormal and UFO, alien abduction stuff, etc. I remember whenever the alien stuff, showing the grey aliens in black suits would come on, my sister and brother would always call me over. I can't explain why, but when I'd see it, I'd start screaming uncontrollably, so that my mom would always run over and hold me and tell my brother and sister to change the channel or shut off the TV. I'm pretty sure after that they stopped watching the show, 
but I never understood why I'd be so terrified. More recently, I've had dreams where we'd be at the house that we grew up in. Me, my brother and sister would be in the living room and something would show up on the front lawn. And these beings, or whatever you want to call them, would come out and then disappear and then reappear inside. And I'd ask myself, how did they get in? And I'd yell at them to leave my sister alone. And I'd feel something grab me and drag me by the feet. And the dream is over. It feels as real as the day I saw that neon pink swirl. Either way, that was my story. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Let me know, let me know when and if you will air your story. My story? Thank you. Jesus Christ. I am the worst... You are. ...reader. I'm, like, actually fucking terrible. It's You're like, literally there with Ben Kissel. Yeah. Well, at least his is a bit. Mine is just fucking natural. Well, Mr. Anonymous. <laughs> sorry for butchering your story. You actually did a really good job of writing it, though. I have actually... Um, I don't know if it was the same interview with Dan Aykroyd, but I have heard Dan Aykroyd talk about that experience. I heard Dan Aykroyd talk about his talk about UFOs in general and the way he's just very like matter of fact. Yeah. It's I mean, I, I wouldn't question the guy. I mean, yeah. He He's either a charlatan <laughs> yeah. or he really knows his shit, but the thing is like I I I just don't think he's lying. You no, know, me I neither because I think that he's actually lost um, quite a lot of his credibility yeah. through his conviction of these things. Yeah. So I do... Like Tom DeLong. Yeah, exactly. But I do think 100% that you experienced this. Yeah, I believe it too. Um, I think these stories are the ones that scare me the most. Yeah. I just... I just can't deal with something that's just out of... I mean, just, I guess, possession's not out, not within my power either, but this is magnified. It's so it's much be- scarier. Yeah, we just don't know anything. Yeah, like in these possession stories that we read as well and research, the answer is usually either the person just needs medical help yeah, or these magical prayers help deliver them and bring them to safety yeah but in the case of the alien stories like there's a reason why i haven't personally covered any alien stories so far yeah one i want to be able to do them justice and two i was falling asleep listening to alien stories for a little while they give you nightmares fuck me up like more than any ghost story ever has yeah i i'm yeah i think i'm scared i'm mostly scared of alien stories yeah so look to any of our listeners who have experienced this 100% get back in touch with me. I know this person was anonymous, but um, I'm sure if you have experienced the same thing, they wouldn't mind talking about it with yeah. you. Um, and yeah, dude or person, I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, I have no advice to give you on it because fair play to you. for. <laughs> this is what I think because he specifically asked, what do you guys think about this? Yeah. I think it's terrifying. And how you can go about your day having these experiences under your belt is beyond me and good for you. Fair play to you. Yeah. Um, what I would do is try to find a therapist that you can trust enough 
to do like regression therapy. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Because maybe you what, can find your answers there. Yeah, that's true. I know that for a lot of people who have experienced like abductions or whatever you want to call them, the regression therapy seems to have really done the trick, if not just to to clarify what actually happened. And also, like, I w- I'd love to know what your what your mom and siblings remember from that day or if yeah. you've spoken to them about it i think if you seek a therapist i mean it would serve that purpose and the other purpose would be like for me personally it would help me on my day-to-day because like i said i'm so terrified of these things i would probably have like a fucking breakdown <laughs> yeah i think it probably was like obviously it's none of this is good but the fact that you were so young oh, at yeah. the time as well probably helped you know what i mean and the fact that like it's not something that's crushing your will to live um but yeah i don't know that's insane yeah dude. and thank you for sharing it with us yeah Definitely. but wait, uh, didn't this person say uh that it's the first story or one of the stories yes yeah, so um from speaking to this person before, I know that they've had some haunting, um, like some paranormal activity in their house. Okay. Well, uh, if you that, have any other stories, send them to us. Oh, yeah. I, um, they said that they'd be in touch. Okay, cool. Uh, I think they just wanted to get that one out there. Yeah. Well, so, li- well, listen, thank you for sending in your stories. I'm sorry I'm not that much help because I'm a big chicken. <laughs> but um, like Adam said, maybe yeah, w- regression therapy would help. Regression therapy or just hopefully through this podcast, we'll find someone that has similar. a similar experience or anything yeah. like that. And again, everybody, make sure you're reaching out to us with your stories. Um, DM them or email them to us. We're at Weekly Creep everywhere everywhere weekly creep at gmail.com and yeah if you have any stories or whatever you want to send us send them on in i think that that about wraps us up right yeah i think i i think i want a snack (sighs) okay (laughs) maybe some chips (laughs) right on okay Thanks so much to all of our listeners who have been with us from the start and who are brand new. We love you one and all. And yeah, I guess that's it. See you guys next week. Okay, bye. Bye.